0: John twelve twenty, True glory. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These, therefore, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me... The Father will honor him. Now, my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered, Others were saying, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes while you have the light believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light these things jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them amen let's pray our father we pray that you will teach us what you have here for us to pursue true glory just as christ pursued it May we do so. True glory, that your name might be praised and honored through us. In Christ we pray, amen. Now, our Lord is met with some Greeks or some Greeks want to meet Christ. What is happening here in this passage? These Greeks are a part of this great crowd, the great multitude, the large crowd of the previous paragraph because it is the time of the Passover festival and Feast of Unleavened Bread, which takes place over a week's time, and because this festival was a requirement of all males to attend, their families could also attend, but it was certainly required that all the males attend, and because the Jews, not only from the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, but also in the land of Israel, in the north, in Samaria and Galilee, and also Jews who lived in foreign countries, it was incumbent upon all of them to come to Jerusalem. And we have stated that according to one historian in the first century, Josephus the historian, he says that there were about at least two and a half million people who would gather for this festival both within the land and from other lands, foreign nations, wherever the Jews lived, at least those men among those foreign lands, they would come to Jerusalem for this one of three festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread started with the Feast of Passover on the first day. So, we have a great crowd, a great multitude of people here. Among them, we have in verse 20, The Greeks, it says that there were certain Greeks. Now, why would John be telling us about the Greeks? Well, that's who's in the crowd. And also in verse 19, the Pharisees are concerned that the world has gone after him. And they mean all of these people, Jews and Greeks, whoever is there, we are concerned that such a huge crowd is assembling around Christ and believing in him they are all following him of course many of them are infatuated by him and are not true believers some are believers and some and or many are not true believers we still have here a great crowd of people and the Pharisees are concerned about it they don't want their influence and they don't want their money they don't want their attention to be separated from them and moving over to Christ. They don't want that at all. They don't believe in what Christ Jesus is preaching. So, verse 20, John, naturally, with this scenario, with this context of lots of people giving attention to Christ, he includes among them certain Greeks, which goes along with the concern of the Pharisees. But the Greeks, though their intentions may be good, we don't know exactly, they want to see Jesus. And they do approach the right person. They approach one of the disciples, Philip. They are right and good in that respect. Here, these Greeks are approaching Christ or want to see Christ. And the passage, if we're not paying attention to the narrative carefully, the passage may seem to have many disjunctions, many Uh, Words and statements that don't seem to fit together. In fact, if you read commentators, they don't seem to be seeing what most commentators don't seem to understand what is going on between one point and, and another. In fact, they would say these Greeks want to see Jesus and Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and then Jesus does not even address the Greeks. It's as though John and Jesus just leave the subject of the Greeks completely to the side. But he ha- they haven't, and he hasn't. We will see the connection uh, in this passage to that point. Not only that point in verses 20 to 22, but also what is this to be glorified, son of man to be glorified? What did Jesus mean by that? Further, what is he saying about this in verse 25 and 26 about loving one's life and hating one's life, serving him, not serving him, and honor. How is honor to be obtained? These questions are all interrelated. They may not seem so on a superficial reading, but they are interrelated. And Jesus is, in fact, answering this crowd or part of the crowd, these Greeks. Okay, now... Firstly, we establish that these men are Greeks. They are Greeks, they're not Jews. They are of the Greek Empire and they are Greek speakers and maybe even literally from the nation of Greece. The Greek Empire was so widespread and so dominant in its culture whenever Alexander the Great in 332 BC whenever he conquered that part of the world Alexander he made he and his successors made sure to spread greek language and culture throughout all of their conquered territories and so by the time of the apostles even though the greeks the greek empire was not ruling the roman empire conquered the greeks by this point the romans could not quickly Uh, supplant, quickly get rid of the Greek culture and um, uh, impose or foist their Roman culture or Latin culture on every part of the Roman Empire. It took more time for that to happen. So at this point, many people are speaking Greek. Some now are speaking Latin. Locally in this place, they are speaking Jewish Aramaic. They're speaking Aramaic. And those who are more studied and maintaining the ancient traditions, they know Hebrew. That's the kind of culture we have here in the land of Israel and in Jerusalem at this time. But among all of these people, we have here the the Greeks who are Gentiles, who speak Greek, who have a different culture, but they have had access, they have had exposure to the Jews who have the scriptures, And so they come to the festival to worship and celebrate. They have adopted the beliefs of the Jews who have been witnessing to them. That is what is happening here. These Greeks are those who have assimilated and adopted, they have believed the religion of the Jews when they preached to them. This should not be a surprise to us that they have embraced this Jewish faith. In Matthew 23, Matthew 23, 15, Jesus says the following, Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus says he's not criticizing the Pharisees for making disciples, for making a proselyte. A proselyte is a convert. A proselyte is someone who has converted from one religion to another religion. So here they travel by sea and land, They make proselytes, they make converts among the Gentiles, among the Greeks, among the Romans, among all other peoples in the land of uh, Egypt, wherever they go to be missionaries and to make converts, they have made some. That shows that the Pharisees believed in conversion. They believed in proselytizing people. They believed in evangelism. They believed in doing missionary work. The Pharisees believed in it. They did it. Jesus is not criticizing that fact. He's criticizing the fact that the Pharisees have a false doctrine and then when they do make a convert, they make the convert twice as dangerous, twice as evil as they are. That's what he's criticizing. But that passage does show that the Jews converted people. They converted Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, whoever. They converted them to the faith. It's not actually the only time and the first time in the history of the people. In the book of Esther, in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 8, you recall in the book of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. In Esther chapter 8, we find that when the Jews circumstances were completely reversed. First it was dangerous, it was perilous, and then there was deliverance from that danger, and when those circumstances changed from danger to security and peace and safety, this is what happened. Esther 8:17. In the time of the Persian empire about 4 to 500 years before the time of the apostles, in the book of Esther, Esther 8:17. In each and every province and in each and every city wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Many of the peoples of the land that is, throughout the Persian Empire, hundreds of years before, they were so terrified and even so impressed that the God of the Jews had delivered the Jews, they converted and became Jews. They became proselytes. This is repeated in chapter 9. 9, 27. Esther 9, 27. The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants, and for all those who allied themselves with them, all those who allied themselves with them, so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. Further, further, this concept is is repeated, reiterated in the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost, which happened which happened about 50 days after what we're reading about in John 12. On the day of Pentecost, Pentecost was another one of those feasts at which they were obliged to come. The men or the males were obliged, obligated to come to that festival, and so they did. Acts chapter 2. We read in verses 5 to 13 that men were there in Jerusalem from the many parts of the world. We start reading about it in verse 9 about the different parts. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Jews, okay? It's he, they say here, or he says here, both Jews and proselytes. And Arabs, verse 11. When he says Jews and proselytes, he's saying, We have men from all of these different parts of the world in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and they are not only ethnically Jews, they belong to the Jewish race, but also they are proselytes. That is, ethnically, they are Greeks or Gentiles, and they have converted and now they are also celebrating with us here this is what he's talking about other examples in the book of acts would be acts chapter 8 the ethiopian eunuch and what was he doing the eunuch the ethiopian eunuch he had the scriptures in his hand isaiah he went to jerusalem to worship it says 8:27 acts 8:27 So he was an Ethiopian, he was not a Jew. From Africa, Ethiopia in Africa. He was from there, but he went to Jerusalem to worship. We could also say this of Cornelius. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Acts 10, Cornelius is a Roman. He is a Roman soldier. And it says of him in verse 2, Acts 10, 2. He is a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. He is acquainted and associates with the Jewish people and he is a devout man. He's a very religious man. He's not converted yet, but he converted in terms of salvation and the gospel yet. But he is converted in that he believes and follows what the Jews follow And he's not worshiping idols anymore. In that sense, he's a proselyte or a convert. And then when Peter preaches, he becomes saved. Saved from his sins by believing in the gospel. And another famous example of this is Lydia. Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 14, calls her a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. She was not saved either before she met Paul. Paul preached the gospel to her and then she was saved, but she was called a worshiper of God in that, Acts 16, 14, she did not worship idols. She worshipped like the Jews worshipped, worshipping the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Scriptures. She had some partial true knowledge She just didn't have the knowledge unto salvation. So she too, in a sense, was a convert or a proselyte in that way. That's who comes to meet Jesus. So, if they come to meet Jesus in John 12, verse 20, what we have here is Jesus' fame spreading abroad. Jesus' fame, his... Who he is, what he's been doing is spreading to foreign lands and the Pharisees cannot have that. They cannot have that because if they have that, then the world literally would follow Christ and they want to stop that. Verse 21, John twenty twenty-one. These therefore came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and began to ask him saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip was from Galilee. If we go from south to north, Judah or Judea is in the south. Just north of it is Samaria and just north of Samaria is Galilee. The farther north one goes in, in that time period in 2,000 years ago in the time of the apostles, the farther north you go, the more Gentiles there are. The more non-Jews live there. Greeks and other kinds of people live there. There would be some Jews, but a lot of Gentiles who live farther and more north. It's also the case the farther east you go or the farther south you go. But in Judea, that would have the highest density of Jews. So naturally, if Philip is from Galilee, where there are a lot of Gentiles, Somehow they know that Philip is from Galilee. Somehow they know perhaps they are from there or some of them are from there and they say, hey, if we're going to follow Jesus, we know Philip. Philip is among the 12. Let's go ask Philip, who's from Galilee, how we can have access to Christ. We want to see him. Also note, Philip, though he's a Jew, he has a Greek name. Philip is a Greek name. And It's natural for him to have a Greek name because he lives in a place in Galilee where it used to be mostly or only Jewish territory, but now it's Greek territory because most of the people there are Greeks or Gentiles. So Philip has a Greek name, though he is a Jew. The name Philip means uh, lover of horses, lover of horses. He is fond of horses, At least that's what the name means. We don't know if his parents wanted him to be that way or they named him after one of the rulers of Greece or what the reason was. But that is his Greek name. In Galilee. Remember, Isaiah the prophet, and Matthew quotes Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, he calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's where this city, Bethsaida, was situated. They want to see Jesus. As we said, we don't know their true motives, but at least they want to see him. I think, it seems, the way that Jesus answers, he suspects that their motives are not good motives. What Jesus is actually doing, and this is the connection between verses 20 to 22 to the rest of this paragraph, the connection is, Jesus' fame, his notoriety is spreading abroad and abroad. The Pharisees are fixated on stopping Jesus' influence, his notoriety. They're fixated on stopping that. Jesus then, on that issue of his fame, he changes it, he transitions from that to talk about where true glory is to be found. And where is that true glory to be found? Verses 23 to 26. In his death, our boasting in his death and our humble service of him. That is the connection between verses 20 to 26. His fame is spreading and everybody is about fame and fortune. Jesus downplays fame and fortune and he upplays his own death on the cross and service to him, Humble service to Him, loving Him, not loving our life, glorifying God by obedience to Christ, love of Christ, focus on the cross of Christ, and that's how God will honor us. That is the inner relationship of these verses. So, we pick it up at verse 22. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. We also see in verse 22 that Andrew was among the disciples and according to John chapter 1, 144, Andrew and Philip and Andrew's brother, Simon Peter, all three of these men were from the same city, Bethsaida of Galilee. They were all from the same city. And... Probably the way John chapter 1 reads, Andrew was perhaps the oldest and more prominent one. And then Andrew goes and tells his brother Peter about the gospel, about Christ, actually seeing Christ, meeting Christ. And then Peter uh, sees Christ and joins Christ. So that these three were friends. And if Andrew were the oldest one, it's natural for Philip to go to Andrew, and for the two of them to approach Christ, to humbly petition Christ, Christ, we want you to know that these men want to meet you. Which is all fine and good. Jesus does not criticize any of that, he does not criticize that approach. What he is, though, doing is teaching them, he's teaching the people, these men, the following verses 23 to 26. Also, we should note that Andrew's name is also a Greek name. comes from the Greek word for being manly. Andreas, or Andrew, as it is here in English, means to be manly, which is also from the Greek language. Okay, so they are all from the north and a natural connection to these Greeks. So now we come to this place where Jesus He rejects or downplays their focus, their fixation on fame, fame and fortune. Verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. What have we read constantly to this point? His hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. Have we not read that several times so far? The hour, so what was that hour? The hour of his crucifixion and resurrection. The hour of his death and resurrection. However, we understand by this word, the hour has come to be primarily a reference to his death. Not so much his resurrection. Why so? Let's show that, let's prove that point. What does he mean, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? In what sense is Jesus glorified? Okay, first, let's reiterate that the word hour has a reference to glory and his death. The hour part. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart... Out of this world to the Father, having loved His own, who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The hour for Him to depart out of this world. What would be the first major event to cause Him to depart out of the world? His death, right? Next, we read in chapter 13, verse 31. 31 to 33 John 13:31. When therefore, he had gone out, Jesus said, "Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also. The Son of Man is about to be glorified. Just within a few days, within that week, he's going to be put on the cross. Three days later, he will rise from the dead. He will be on the earth for another 40 days with many convincing proofs of his resurrection. Ten days after that, the day of Pentecost will come. But before that, he ascends into heaven and he's no more in the world, right? So all of these events are about to happen, but I believe his focus is on his death. His focus is on his death. Why his death? Why does he say to be glorified with his death? Why is that the focus? Verse 24, back to John 12, 24. 1224, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about his death, and that it's necessary to die. Correct? And then, verse 25, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. There too... He's implying death. If you love your life and you don't want to die, you don't want to die to yourself, then you'll lose your life. Furthermore, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. Why troubled? Because he's about to die. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this hour, the hour of my death. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This hour is his imminent death. Then the glory part. Father, glorify your name. Verse 28. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. His glory is related to his death. Further, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. What's the subject at hand? His death. His death, if He's lifted up, notice there, this is the irony of the Bible. To be lifted up is normally used to be uh, in the context of exaltation, right? Exaltation, honor, glory, something or someone is lifted up. It usually is used that way. But in the Scripture, in this context, it's used in the opposite way. He is going to be lifted up literally on a cross, but that cross is His glory. It's the glory of Christ. It's the glory of the Father. And it's also our glory, which we'll show in a moment. It is the cross that becomes the irony that people don't realize. The glory is in the cross, in His dying. And the multitude, the crowd, they understood it. Verse 34, The multitude, therefore, answered Him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Their focus is on the fame and fortune. Their focus is on peace and prosperity. Their focus is on glory in ways that God did not mean. So Jesus turns it around and says that when I am lifted up, that's when I'm glorified. When I'm put to death, that is my glory. And we see this confirmed, for example, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The glory of Christ is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross, One eighteen, one eighteen. 118. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Also, notice 1 Corinthians 2 2. 1 Corinthians 2 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why does the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians? Corinthians 1 and in 1 Corinthians 2 and also Galatians six, fourteen. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians six fourteen. Why was it that the apostle in these two chapters in 1 Corinthians Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 talks about the cross not resurrection, not ascension, not second coming, not any of those. When he's talking about the true preaching of the gospel and what the focus of the people should be when they hear the gospel preached, what the preacher should be talking about and what the people should be hearing. Why does he say, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why did He say, I'm not going to boast in anything except in the cross? Why did He say that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God? Because the world wants signs, the world wants wisdom, the world doesn't want the cross. But Christ is saying, and Paul is saying, that that's where the glory is. We need to have faith in the cross boast in the cross, glory in the cross, because Christ glories in the cross. And furthermore, back to John 12. Later in the narrative, he quotes Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 53, verse 1, verse 38, he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. When we cite the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, we know that to be one of the most extensive explanations of the death of Christ. Certainly, Isaiah is preaching the resurrection of Christ in that same chapter, but his focus primarily in Isaiah 53 is the death of Christ. When he says that his my servant will be high and exalted and lifted up, when he says things like that, he is not only talking about resurrection, but he's primarily talking about the death of Christ, where the glory is, where the exaltation of Christ is. That which men despise, God uses to despise the men who despise God. That's what's happening in this passage. So, Christ is predicting his imminent death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So focus on that, not notoriety, not fame, not fortune. Back to John 12 and verse 24. His illustration is of wheat, a grain of wheat. He just uses one example. Wheat, the seed or the grain of wheat, it cannot be isolated, left alone. It cannot be left to be dry and shrivel up It cannot be left that way. It has to be placed in the ground and it has to be placed in the ground with moisture, with water. And after a few days, it deteriorates, it rots, it corrupts in the ground. And that corruption or that rot has to happen with the moisture before it can turn around in the miraculous way of rotting first and then rising up out of the ground and bearing fruit. This is the way of the cross. If we don't understand the cross the same way, that it's necessary for us to have true understanding, true faith in this death of Christ for our sins, we cannot properly understand resurrection. And we will not understand bearing fruit. We won't understand it. If we don't understand why Jesus died on the cross, we cannot understand why He rose from the dead, and the necessity of bearing fruit as evidence that we truly believe in why he died. If we truly believe in why he died, we will believe in the real reason for his resurrection, that his resurrected life might be in us to bear fruit to God, to bear fruit for eternal life. Not to... Earn eternal life. We are not talking about earning salvation, working for salvation. What we are talking about is if we correctly understand Jesus' death, that there's nothing good in us, we must believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. If we truly believe it, our true belief will show in true behavior. Our true confession will show in true conduct our true lips will show in a true life this is what he's talking about true faith will show in true fruit that's what he's meaning here that it bears much fruit jesus taught the same john 14:15 john 14:15 if you love me you will keep my commandments If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. 15 verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is the way of the true faith, of the true Christian faith. We believe in his death, resurrection, and bear much fruit. Now, verse 25. John 12, 25. He who loves his life shall lose it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Jesus spoke of his death. Well, doesn't his death mean that people unjustly put him to death? Doesn't it mean that the Jews and the Romans will conspire? and Judas Iscariot will conspire. They'll all conspire to put him to death unjustly, wrongfully, right? That's what's going to happen to Christ. But Christ now bridges the gap and he says, it's not only going to happen to me that way, it's also going to happen to you that way. Not only will I be unjustly persecuted and put to death, you also will unjustly be persecuted and put to death. You also must despise your life you also must hate your life. Now he's not talking about being people who harm ourselves, commit suicide. He's not talking about that. He's talking about relative to loving Christ and following Christ. We should not follow our own ways. We should not follow our own sins. We should not follow our own wisdom. In fact, we must hate our past, hate our sins, hate our past life, hate the things we used to love and follow Christ. This is what he means here. He means that we must hate our old life and we must love the new life in Christ. Because if we love our life now, we will lose it. If we love our life now, we will lose it. This is... The same as James 4. James 4, verses 1 to 4. James 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The apostle is saying that we must hate the world hate the things of the world hate the friendship of the world when we hate the world we are hating our life but when we love the world we're going to lose our life how will we lose it because we are enemies of God why will we lose it because we are hostile toward God 1 John 1 John 2:15 teaches the same 1 John 2:15 to 17 1 John two fifteen. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Everyone who loves the world and the things of the world, he's going to pass away, perish, be destroyed along with the world. So don't love the world. Don't love your life in the world that way. Love Christ. Believe in his death and resurrection for your sins. And if we do so, it results in life eternal. Life eternal. Think about this. He's teaching here that do we not understand the difference? What is momentary pleasure now compared to eternal pleasure in the presence of God? What is momentary satisfaction now compared to eternal satisfaction in the presence of God? What is momentary happiness now compared to eternal happiness being with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ forever and ever. If we are understanding the gospel correctly, we understand these distinctions. We understand that we want eternal life, eternal life for our souls. We don't want to die and go to hell. We understand what it means to be in the heat now. People complain when it's 100 or 110 degrees. People complain of that. They don't want to be outdoors. And rightfully, we have to protect ourselves outdoors. But that heat is nothing, is nothing compared to the heat of the stove. We also know it's wrong and bad and dangerous to touch the stove, whether it's electric or gas It's dangerous to touch the stove. It's dangerous to touch a very hot pot on the stove. It will harm ourselves. We know this in terms of physical realities, correct? Then why don't we know this in terms of eternal realities? Who, if he truly understands love and hate, the biblical way, who will hate himself so much to say, I don't care what you're saying, I'll go to hell. I'd rather be in hell with all my friends and I will even be in hell with the devil but I don't want to be with God. I don't want to be with you and I don't want to be with the God that you preach. People like that do not know the gospel. People like that hate God, hate the word of God and hate the people of God. The opposite is life eternal. Further, verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, the connection between loving our life properly, loving Christ, understanding his death and resurrection, and now attaching ourselves to him. Bearing much fruit. How are we bearing much fruit? By serving him. Now we don't serve ourselves anymore. We serve him. We don't seek to please ourselves anymore. We seek to please him. He says, if anyone is serving him, if anyone claims to serve Christ, he must follow him. He says, follow me. Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Matthew twenty eight eighteen to 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the of the age. Luke 9.23 If any man wants to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow Christ. If we are followers of Christ we deny ourselves daily and follow him. We serve him and follow him. These two go together. We cannot have any misunderstandings any kind of Uh, division between true service of Christ and following Christ. And if we understand it correctly, what is the outcome? Just as he said in verse 25, life eternal, he intimates that again in verse 26 when he says, and where I am, there shall my servant also be. Where he is, his servant will also be. John 14. Where is that place? And do we know? Yes, John 14. Where is the place that he says he's going? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am... That's our phrase. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The way is known. It is Christ. Believe in his death for your sins. And where he's going, ultimately... He is going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again. He he has gone there to prepare a place for us so that where He is now, where I am, there you may be also. The many eternal dwelling places in His Father's house. That's what He has for us. Who doesn't want that? We should all want that. That where he is, we also shall be. Further, he is emphasizing the fact that it's necessary to be his servant. John twelve twenty six. There my servant also be. If anyone serves me, serve Christ. We do not live for ourselves. We do not serve ourselves. We serve Him. We must look at ourselves not only as Jesus' friends. We are His friends. We should not look at ourselves as Jesus' children only. We are His children. We should not merely look at ourselves as His bride. Yes, we are His bride. He is our groom. Those are all true. But the one fact that we are his servant or slave is what no one wants to consider. No one wants to contemplate this truth that we are his servants. We are his slaves. We belong to him. He owns us. We do not own ourselves. He owns us. Do you not know? that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We belong to our Master. So whatever our Master tells us, whatever our Master teaches us, whatever our Master expects of us, we ought to do. And if we do so, God will be pleased. We are certainly his slaves or servants. Look at John 13. John 13, 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Who's he talking about? He's talking about you and me being his slave. That if, the master is treated a certain way. If a master lives his life a certain way, righteously, the slave should do the same. Chapter 15, John 15, John fifteen eighteen to 20. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. That's what we just read in chapter 13. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We must consider ourselves the slaves of Christ. And if we do so, the Father will honor him, he says. 1226, the Father will honor him. Now we have come full circle. We started with an implication of honor in verse 20 or 19 and 20. The implication of honor. The fame of Christ is spreading. The Pharisees don't want it. The Greeks are now asking about Christ. And now Christ says yes, honor has its place, biblically speaking but this is the way to receive true glory or true honor. Believe in Christ, serve Christ, don't love your own life, your sinful life, give that up, follow me, bear fruit, serve me, be my servant, be my slave, be faithful to me, bear much fruit, the outcome is life eternal, where I am there shall my servant also be, if we understand all that correctly, the Father will honor him. Don't we want the Father to say, as well as Christ say, on that day of judgment, Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't we want him to say that? Don't we want him to say that we are found in Christ? Don't we want him to say I don't uh, that I know who you are. We don't want him to say I don't know who you are. Get out of here, right? We don't want any of that. We want him to say I know you. I knew you. I always knew you. We never want him to say I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew seven twenty three. We want the Father to honor us, giving us the crown of life, giving us this crown that is upon us and that will remain with us for all eternity we must live for the honor of god or the glory of god we live to please him we live to honor him to glorify him we don't live to honor ourselves we don't live to honor one another to honor the flesh or anybody else or anything else the true believer knows that though God loves him, he didn't love him to end it there. He loved him in order for the true believer to glorify God forever. And if we understand the glory of God forever, God will glorify us. If we don't understand true love, we won't love him. If we don't understand true glory, we won't glorify him. If we glorify him... Then God will one day glorify us. He will lift us up as He lifted up Christ in the sense that there is eternal reward that can never be taken away. God will deliver us from every evil deed and will bring us safely into His heavenly kingdom. when He brings us safely into His heavenly kingdom, second Timothy 4:18. That's when we have eternal honor. That's what we should strive to receive. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.